Holiday House Books for Young People presents John McGoran, author of the Spliced Trilogy, Spliced, Splintered, and Spiked, in conversation with editor Kelly Lachman. Welcome back to our second installment of our conversation with John McGoran, author of the Spliced Trilogy. My name is Kelly Lachman, and I have had the pleasure of editing John's books. And um, we're going to be talking a bit in this episode about the third book in the trilogy, which is called Spiked. In our first episode, we talked a bit about books one and two and a lot of the issues that uh, John really skillfully has threaded through those books. And um, John, welcome back. Thanks. Very happy to be here with you. We ended our last episode talking a bit about the digital divide, and uh, that is a theme that is a a big part of book three. Uh, I wonder if you could just take us through the plot a bit. And uh, yeah, where where are we with Jimmy in book three? Yeah, sure. So um, after book one, you know, after Splice, when Splintered started, Jimmy was in the position of, of kind of trying to put her life back together. Uh, and get on with it. And after the events in Splintered, you know, that is also true. But she, you know, with each book, she moves deeper and deeper into this world. And her relationships deepen with the Chimeras. Uh, you know, her relationship with Rex has deepened. Her commitment to working for Chimera rights is stronger and more structuralized. She's interning. She's volunteering. Uh, her mom and her aunt are volunteering with uh, Earth for Everyone, which is which is great. I think the start of the book is uh, it's right before uh, the first. You know, Humans for Humanity is this group that is kind of capitalizing and exploiting. Uh, chimeras as a wedge issue and kind of trying to have them labeled as non-persons and, you know, doing some, some pretty dreadful stuff with, uh, with Howard Wells, the uh, antagonist, the nemesis at the helm. As Spiked begins, uh, we're just about to see the, the first national conference of, uh, or national convention of Humans for Humanity. And Jimmy gets this call out of the blue from a uh, Reverend Calkins, who is kind of a moderate member of Humans for Humanity, who is a, he's a clergyman who is kind of concerned about, about humanity losing its humanity. You know, he has legitimate concerns about people changing themselves. You know, he, he has a kind of a traditional view that, that humans are in God's image and changing that is wrong. But he does not agree with the, some of the extreme tactics that some of the other people, like Howard Wells, have been doing. So he puts together this uh, this kind of meeting of moderates from both the pro-chimera and the anti-chimera factions uh, as a, a way to try to create some common ground and ratchet back tensions. And Jimmy is invited to be a part of that because because of her, the prominence that she's gained in the first two books. And again, she you know she feels like she's probably uh, would be out of place there, and she feels like an imposter. But she also feels like if she has been called on to contribute to an effort to find common ground and and ratchet back tensions and find mis- and, and find understanding between the two sides, that she owes it to herself to do that. Um, one of the ideas that that we kind of touch on a bit in Splintered is that even on the pro-chimera side, there are kind of these, uh, you know, some people think that that organizations like Chimerica and like Humans for Humanity aren't going far enough to protect chimeras from oppression or exploitation. And this group called CLAD shows up in Splintered 
uh, and they, uh, they, they do a couple bombings of buildings where no one is hurt, uh, but they, you know, they blow up a church and they blow up some other buildings associated with the people who are oppressing the chimeras. So, so Jimmy's concerned about that as well. She sees, you know, she, she thinks extremism on either side is, is wrong. I mean, obviously she disagrees with all of what Humans for Humanity is about, but she especially disagrees with the people who are most uh, vehement and vociferous and, and, and most antagonistic towards the chimeras. So she's going to this meeting and as she is, she is abducted by uh, these masked figures who she, you know, figures out are a part of CLAD and they don't want her to, to participate in this because they don't want her to, to be giving Humans for Humanity kind of political cover. Uh, she th- they think that it's a mistake, that they're all extremists and that anything that makes them look like they maybe they're not extremists is detrimental to the Chimera movement. So they want her not to go. She insists she's going to go anyway. Uh, and they let her go. But before she can get to the meeting, uh, a bomb goes off and everyone there is killed. So a lot of what book three is about is kind of, you know, threading this needle between what's right and what tactics are justified in defense of what's right, um, how extreme is too extreme, uh, how non-extreme is, you know, you know, if, if sometimes being a moderate is, is inadequate to the challenge at hands. Uh, sometimes extremism, you know, in the face of, of extreme situations are, is necessary or is beneficial. And Jimmy's kind of finding herself in, in those, uh, and, and, and so are the others, you know, Rex and some of the other people. And some of the people are more becoming more closely allied with these extremist groups. And some of the people, you know, still kind of think that they're wrong. So that's kind of the setup at the beginning of, of excuse me, Spiked. Things kind of expand from there. And a lot of the things that have been kind of operating under the, under the surface in the first two books kind of emerge and come, to the, and come to the surface and are exposed to what is Chimerica really? Who is running it? What are they about and why? Why do they seem to be so reluctant sometimes to take action? Um, one of the things that's really exasperating for Jimmy in, in Splintered is that the people in charge of Chimerica, which is this kind of shadowy pro-Chimera group, seem really reluctant to take action. To take action in favor uh, or in, in support of various problems that many Chimeras are facing. Exactly. And, and specific ones, too, you know, broadly and specifically. And in, in Splintered, there is a, you know, there are specific uh, wrongs being done that need to be confronted with action. And Jimmy is exasperated that Chimerica won't do that. You know, from her point of view, she's entirely justified. We start to learn more in Spiked uh, about some of the things that she has been unaware of and some of the justifications for taking a slow approach and some of the reasons why Chimerica is, is kind of doing the things they're doing and not doing the things they're not doing. Um, you had mentioned the digital divide, and that really, really does come to the fore in Spiked. You know, the name Spiked comes from the, the slang word for getting a well plant, you know, these, these computer implants uh, put into your skull. They call that getting spiked because it's, it looks like a spike. In Splintered, we kind of look at the digital divide on a kind of a macro level, how that manifests in industry and employment and trade. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to, it's not really, it's not a white paper on global trade, uh, but, uh, but that's, it it kind of manifests in the background in splintered, you know, one of the things that we look at, and again, I don't want to, you know, give away too much. um, But 
more and more of the people with with more resources are getting implants. Again, it's you know it's kind of uh, I don't know if I don't know if I make this uh, connection in the book, um, but in a way, it's kind of um, you know in a world where more and more people are getting these computer implants, if you don't have one, you're at a disadvantage. You're at a competitive disadvantage, and it's kind of like in, in sports with with performance enhancing drugs. If everybody else on the team is is on steroids or, or growth hormones or whatever, and you're not, they're going to start to outperform you and whatever pressure there had been on you to dope is going to be even greater. Right. Uh, and that's part of the part of the dynamic that goes on in spiked is that as these well plants become more and more powerful and the you know the benefits that they bring are, are more and more stark. And as more and more people adopt them and and get implanted, uh, the people who have not are left at a competitive disadvantage. And one of the ways we explore this is that one of the characters, uh, one of the chimeric characters uh, her father, who is an entrepreneur, succumbs to that pressure and he gets a well plant, which is, is horrifying to his family in part because, because he just had this computer, you know, uh, spiked into his brain, um, but also because he's buying it from this guy who is leading the backlash against chimeras and this guy's daughter is a chimera. But, you know, for him, he's feeling uh, a competitive disadvantage and I think that that's like a really interesting, you know, interesting aspect of these things. You know, if everybody, you know, if somebody introduces a computer implant tomorrow, you probably would say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. I don't want a computer implanted in my brain. But if all of your coworkers and all of your competitors and all of your classmates and all of your rivals in whatever way uh, have them and have this advantage over you, then the pressure to go along with that is, is, is going to become greater and greater and greater. And then the other idea, you know, or one of the other ideas along with this that I find really, really uh, compelling, you know, so I was kind of working on the structure of what was going to happen in book three. And, and I knew that, you know, well plants and these kind of computer implants and this kind of machine transhumanism, uh, which has been an important part of the first two books, you know, I still thought it had been underexplored. And I really wanted to kind of uh, delve into that more deeply. So among the many moving parts of this book, uh, one of the things that, uh, that we kind of get into is, you know, what happens if after the first generation, second generation, third generation, upgrade after upgrade after upgrade, the, uh, these computer implants become more and more powerful uh, and you find yourself in a situation where the, uh, where the computer implant is more powerful than the brain it's implanted into. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier in the, in the first episode, we talked about, you know, this, this kind of idea at the core of these books, what is human? Um, and here you have a situation where the, you know, the, the machine that is implanted into the brain is more powerful than the brain it's implanted into where the computer tail is wagging the biological brain dog. And you find yourself in the situation where, the, the bulk of the mental capacity that a person has is derived from the computer that's implanted into their brain instead of the, you know, their biological brain. Well, that really does start to raise this question again of, is that human? You know, if, if 60% of your mental capacity is coming from a, a gadget, uh, then, you know, where, what is predominant? You know, are you more machine than, than person? Are you still human? 
I don't know the answer to that, and I, you know, I wouldn't presume to try to answer it. Uh, but I think it's a really important question, and a really interesting question, and one that sooner or later is going to have very practical, you know, real-world ramifications. As you weave these questions um, into the plot, I'm struck if we can get into the minutia a little bit. Um, I was struck by how the idea of getting spiked uh, affected people uh, because you know we talk about the digital divide and it is the extremely wealthy who have these implants but as this book goes on uh, we discover that certain civil servants are being given access to this technology we discover that certain members of the media suddenly are being implanted with this technology so it's not just kind of a one percent situation and obviously the person who owns this technology is howard wells he factors in really heavily uh, in this book can you talk a little bit about the machinations behind his uh what's motivating him without giving too much away yeah without giving too much away yeah that's the <laughs> that's always the bugaboo isn't it um so yes uh i will um uh i yeah i can talk about that a bit and i and i you know that's kind of at the core of the book you know so one of the things that is going on is that wellplant the company has started this uh program as wellplants become more and more accepted by you know the 1% and uh, and become more accepted by broader society as well, uh, because so many prominent people have them. Um, the uh, the company, you know, kind of as a you know, ostensibly as a goodwill gesture, ostensibly for the betterment of the world and society, uh, makes the well plants available to uh, world leaders, political leaders, and also you know, uh, law enforcement. Um, you know, because because they're doing such important work, uh, you know, let's make them, you know, they should have access to this powerful technology and all the benefits that it brings. You know, and again, I'm not going to go too deeply into this, uh, but I do want to, I, I think the other, you know, we're talking about what happens when you have these implants that are getting more and more powerful and suddenly have more, are more powerful than the brains that they're implanted into. The other, the other kind of issue that goes along with that is um, that, you know, as, since, as we said before, there, you know, there is no internet and there are no cell phones and the well plants have kind of, you know, stepped in to fill that, uh, that gap for the very wealthy, you know, part of what they bring to the table is that they are networked. So now you have this, uh, these individual implants that are getting more and more powerful and you also have the networked. What happens if that, kind of if that network becomes a thing unto itself as well. And some of the similarities between networked computers and a hive mind, um, which, uh, which I find really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think is a really, really fascinating part of the book. It was, yeah. you know, for me, it was great to kind of think through it uh, and to kind of be able to, you know, explore it through what I think is really a, a very exciting thriller plot. Uh, with a lot at stake, you know, I don't know how uh, how deeply we want to uh, go into some of the other, um, you know, the other aspects of the plot that that kind of reveal. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. Um, maybe cut it there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there is another element of the plot that I think we absolutely should touch on. Um, 
one of the many crucial plot points of this book is the threat of a viral pandemic. And I'm sure you and I are on the same page when I say that um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that this book would be publishing um, at a moment when the world is struggling with the terrifying impacts of that very thing. And I think a, a lot of us are understandably eager for every snippet of news we can get um, about the scientific efforts to combat COVID-19. Um, and since existing science influences this trilogy um, and certainly this book uh, to, a, to a significant degree, I wonder if, if you might talk about the elements of epidemiological research that were particularly helpful to you when you were creating this thread. So, you know, as we talked about in the first episode, the kind of the idea of pandemics is part of the backstory of this series and part of the conceptual underpinning of the world that these books take place in, that they're uh, 10 years before the first book takes place. There, there was a flu pandemic. Uh, a lot of people died, including people close to uh, people, you know, characters in the book. And it really kind of changed the look of the world. You know, it, it altered the landscape in a lot of ways. In this book, that comes back in a much more immediate way. Part of what is at play, and you'll stop me if, if you think I'm going, if I'm revealing too much, because there, there is, you know, this is kind of the, the getting to the meat of the book. So I don't, I want to kind of talk about it, but I don't want to give too much away. Well, talk, talk about your research if you don't want to go there. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, uh, so I had done a lot of research into pandemics uh, before, you know, before writing Spliced because, because of the import uh, of the flu pandemic you know, to the, the world building, to creating, to the backstory and to creating the world that the books take place in. I'd say probably the, the most direct corollary was the 1918 flu, the Spanish flu epidemic. It killed millions and millions of people, killed a lot of people in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, which is where I'm based, which is where these books are set, was one of the hardest hit cities in the world. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of, you know, and, and just, you know, with our uh, current situation, one of the things that's most alarming is that you know, nobody talks about the 1917 flu pandemic, um, right. but the 19, 1917 was, you know, one of the worst flu years in history. And then it was over and everybody's like, shoof, that was terrible. Uh, and then 1918 was, you know, orders of magnitude worse, um, which a lot of people are afraid that, you know, we're, we're headed for that with COVID-19, that there's going to be another, another wave of it. You know, I did a lot of research into, you know, historical research into how the 1918 pandemic played out. Uh, I, you know, talked to some molecular biologists and epidemiologists. Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful, uh, uh, highly talented, really talented thriller writer named uh, Kate Moretti, who does not write science thrillers. Uh, we actually, we had her on the Liars Club podcast, which is a podcast that I co-host, and she's great. But uh, she is in real life a molecular biologist. So, you know, she kind <laughs> Gotta of- Gotta have a day job sometimes. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, and, uh, but it was great because she's this molecular biologist who has the mind of a thriller writer. So I was able to bounce stuff off of her. She was, you know, hugely helpful uh, and just, you know, wonderful to work with and, and talk to. She helped me understand a lot about the kind of the current understanding of, of, uh, of pandemics. Um, you know, so I, I interviewed her, I interviewed other people. I talked, I talked to a lot of people and, and read a lot, read a lot of the historical stuff from 1918. And I will tell you, it's, it has been very weird these last few months. You know, I've kind of been, had pandemics on the brain for the last four or five years. And I've, you know, I've toyed with, with pandemic ideas for thrillers in the past because I, I find 
the concept fascinating and terrifying. But first, I did a lot of research before writing Spliced and Splinter, just to kind of nail down the world building and the, the kind of the backstory of this world. And then I kind of dove into it even deeper as I realized that uh, that pandemics were going to be at the core of, of Spiked. Um, and then I spent a lot of time in that world as I was writing this book. And then, you know, lo and behold, uh, uh, just as the arcs are going out, uh, suddenly we're hit by a pandemic. Um, and uh, it's been very, very uh, interesting and distressing and surreal watching, you know, the, the pandemic play out and kind of seeing how it's been similar or different from the, uh, the pandemic pandemic that I, you know, the picture that I paint in, in the books. In terms of um, the effects that we may or may not see from um, the pandemic that we're currently experiencing, I wonder if you might touch a bit on um, the environmental impact. Uh, we're seeing that in the news a lot, for better and worse. And yeah. one thing you, you touch on in Spiked is depopulation mm -hmm. uh, and, and the environmental impacts of that. So in the Splice Trilogy, you have this world that is, you know, drastically impacted by climate change uh, and that also has a depopulating pandemic in, in its backstory. And one of the things that kind of comes to light in the third book is that there was a big dip in carbon emissions during the pandemic in the backstory of the books. And that's part of the history of, of these books, of the, of the world in which these books take place. Um, and that factors in again. Uh, that's part of the calculus. You know, the, the, the climate change, I think, is it, it kind of, um, you know, one of the things I tried to do in all three books was, was take a look at a different part of the world um, or a different part of a, a different type of part of the world uh, and, and look at how climate change has impacted it. And, uh, and how that manifests in, in different areas and also in different seasons. So it kind of is even more present in the third book. And I wanted to kind of, you know, put it out there that, yes, things, you know, even though this world is so far in the future, it's, you know, several decades in the future, and it's, it's already been drastically altered, and a lot of changes have been made to kind of try to mitigate uh, the, the worst effects of climate change. It, it, that has not been, you know, victory has not been declared. The mission is not accomplished, and it's still getting worse. Um, and in the uh, part of the calculus to some of the things that goes on in the, in the third book is looking back at that moment in history 10, 12 years earlier when there was this epidemic, when there was this pandemic, when the world was shut down and when the population ratcheted back, uh, and and there you know it did have a beneficial a beneficial impact on on climate change um, and one of the things that's been really kind of fascinating in the current pandemic is that that has been that has been borne out um, and it's remarkable watching these things kind of you know it's a test case for some of the ideas in the book and you know there are stories from India now that that you know places that have not been able you know places from where the uh, the Himalayas have not been visible. There suddenly the air has cleared to the extent that, that they're, they've reappeared on the horizon. Uh, they haven't been visible for 50, 60 years. And now, you know, with the way the economy has been shut down, with, by the way, uh, from the way in, uh, emissions have been shut down, uh, all of a sudden the air in, you know, in a matter of weeks has cleared to the point where all of a sudden these mountains are visible again. Uh, satellites 
over China have seen a, a drastic clearing of the air. You know, in places that have been pollution hotspots, uh, it's been you know devastating to the people. Um, the uh, you know both the, the the pandemic itself and the impact of the economic slowdown. But there are these kind of environmental benefits from these economic slowdowns. You know, and that's part of the thinking of some of the people who do certain things in, in book three, which I don't mm-hmm. want to go into because uh, I don't want to give it away and spoil it. Um, but it's been, it has been remarkable seeing, you know, that actually come to fruition and that being borne out these kind of ideas that, uh, that went into the book being kind of proven as a, as a concept. Sure. Sure. Um, but at the same time, you do touch on the devastation and the emotional toll, uh, and the tragedy of this in the, in the books as well. And, you know, through, through the eyes of, uh, Jimmy, who has lost loved ones and um, and is forced to imagine an existence and a future that is utterly uncertain um, as this threat hangs over her head. I hope I haven't given too much away. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. I think that was fine. I think that was fine. But yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's terrifying in a way. Um, and, um, you know, and there are a lot of, you know, definite uh, differences between the, the pandemic in the book and the one that we're currently going through. You know, there's diseases like Ebola, which are, you know, uh, really kind of immediately terrifying, you know, because of the way that they, that they hit you. Um, but when, you, you know, one of the things that um, it has a, a much shorter incubation period, you know, and one of the things that has made COVID-19 so incredibly dangerous is that you can have it for a long time before you start to have symptoms. So it can, you know, it's given more time to spread, uh, you know, something like Ebola, which is, you know, in many ways, much more horrific. In a way, it's a lot easier to get on top of because of, because of the, sh- the, shorter, uh, the shorter incubation period. Um, so, you know, for the purposes of the book, I went with something with a, a much shorter incubation period, much quicker onset of symptoms, which makes for a much more uh, dramatic and actiony uh, spread, as opposed to something you know that can that can take a week or two to incubate and can you know kind of spread unseen before anybody has uh, has the symptoms. Um, sure. But there's been a lot of similarities as well, and it, and it has been really striking. You know, it's a, it's a very striking thing, especially when you're writing, you know, about the city that you live in, even if it's, a, you know, an iteration of it from, uh, you know, 40 years in the future or whenever. Um, it's still striking when you, you know, yeah. you're writing about these things happening there, and then they happen there. If I can pivot for a second, you, you mentioned the word action earlier and, and something that I was hoping to talk about with you a little bit is we've talked so much about the ideas in these books, um, but they are thrillers. They are lightning fast. Uh, the pacing is unbelievably quick. You sometimes can't breathe. You don't miss a minute because they're coming at you so fast. And, um, and all of this action and excitement is shouldered by a 16 and then 17 year old uh, young woman and her friends. You've created really strong characters in these young people. And, um, and, and I just wondered, how did you know they could handle it? How, how did you, how did you develop their characters so that you knew they could take this on? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great question. And, um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't want it to be unbelievable. 
You know, you, you, you want these unbelievable things to happen, but in a way that makes them believable. And that's a challenge. You know, one of the, one of the things that I've found most gratifying in writing this trilogy is, is Jimmy's arc is watching, you know, her grow. And I, and I kind of, um, you know, I mean, I think she's a very special person, a very special character. And I think that not everybody, um, you know, I think most people put in the positions that she, into which she is put would not react as, uh, as admirably as she does. But I think that she has a, um, you know, she has a very clear sense uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the books, there's a lot of gray areas, you know, and yes. I, and I think that yes. in life, that's how it is. And I think that Jimmy, you know, even when she doesn't know what is right or wrong, you know, she knows the difference between right or wrong. She has a very, very strong sense of right and wrong and, uh, you know, and fairness and unfairness. And, you know, she takes very seriously her responsibilities as a human being, you know, to do the right thing. You know, she's not a chimera. She's not an adult. She's not, you know, the head of a government agency or a cop or in the military or the, you know, the intel. You know, she's not in, in a position of power, uh, in the kind of position of power that really should be addressing, you know, some of the bad things that are that are going on. And you know, part of the, you know, her mother's exasperation is like, well, why you? Why do you have to be doing this? And the thing is, you know, Jimmy's viewpoint is, you know, like, yeah, it shouldn't be me. It shouldn't be a 16-year-old, 17-year-old girl going out there and trying to save the world, but, like, nobody else is doing it. And, it, you know, it's like a kind of, you know, I look at Greta Thunberg, you know, here's this, this young woman who's like, what the hell, do I have to do everything around here? You know, <laughs> like, like, the world is being destroyed. Why the heck is nobody doing anything about it? You know, yes, it shouldn't be a 12-year-old girl who's taking this bull by the horns and confronting this situation, but all of you, all of you people are out there not doing anything. Like, I have to do something. And I think that, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that Greta Thunberg is, is looking at Jimmy for inspiration, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, I, Jimmy was on the scene first. I just want to, you know, put that out there. Like, but it was really... Noted. You know, it was really uh, kind of gratifying in a way to see this, you know, this heroic young person stepping up to confront this fight that everybody's standing on the sidelines of. And, you know, maybe she is kind of the, the least likely person in the world to step up to that, you know, to, to, to confront that challenge. But if nobody else is doing it, she feels like she can't not. And, yeah. and I think that's, I think that, I think that's believable. I think that's, I think that's, that's a human thing. And I think that's real. Um, so I've kind of put Jimmy in this series of escalating situations, you know, where the, each challenge that he, she confronts prepares her for the next one. And I think yeah. that's how life is, you know, yeah. that's how, that's how people become great, you know, is they, they step up to this challenge and that prepares them for the next challenge. And they step up to the next one. And that prepares them to the one after that. And, you know, and, and part of, you know, one of the things that, that, that I love about writing YA is that, you know, getting, getting to meet these characters at these moments in their lives where they are making the decisions and taking the actions that, that are going to form them into the people that, that they will become. You know, they are people. They are who they are. 
but they are also, you know, at the precipice of who they're going to be. And, and the way they react to the challenges that are thrown at them, the, the, the adversity and the, the, the fear, uh, the way they surmount those is, is what makes them, you know, the, the people who they're going to be. And I think that's, I think it's fascinating. I think it's like, it's just such a, a, a dramatic part of human existence. Uh, it's really been a, a, a treat to, to, to write about it. And it's a time of our existence that doesn't last very long. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's like one of the things that, you know, people ask, why do you, why do you want to write uh, YA? And, and it's a, a number of reasons. And, and one is that I realized uh, when I had the idea for these books that it would be young people who would be the ones who got spliced, you know, that, that it would be primarily a youth culture thing. You know, character is the most important thing in fiction and character arc is, you know, a, a hugely important part of that. And when you have people who in adolescence, you know, their arcs are acute, you know, they are changing, you know, it's not just the, you know, even if these huge dramatic events weren't impacting them, they would still be changing in dramatic and fascinating and exciting ways over the course of, of days and weeks and months, you know, so you get to write about characters that are, that are going to be different at the end than they were at the beginning, regardless. Uh, and, and even more so, you know, when you put them into the plots that you put them into. Yeah. And, and now you're, you've come to the end of an arc. You've, well, you've, you've come to the end of the arc of this trilogy and, and Jimmy and, and her friends. And what's that like for you? Yeah, it's been, it's been intense. It's been really, really intense. You know, I think I, you know, uh, and partly this is, you know, this is the, the third trio of books that I've written, but it's the first YA trilogy and it's the first trilogy that was intended to be a trilogy you know i definitely leave open the door to you know stepping back into this world and exploring it in a different way somehow or another at some point or another um but you know we were all on the same page that this was a trilogy and the arc of the stories was that you know we knew that this was going to be an end point so on the one hand i kind of feel like you know it's been more intense than writing the previous series that i've written because i've because of that arc that we were just talking about, because I've been through so much, what seems like so much more, so much more formative uh, experience with these characters. Um, but also because I've known, you know, that there, this was, you know, we were facing this impending uh, date of parting, you know, that we were going to be saying goodbye. And, um, you know, I'm much more invested in, in these characters than the characters in my previous books. I think because, because of the time of their lives and also because I knew that I was going to be, you know, it was going to be closing, I was going to be closing the book with the end of this book, you know, that it was, the, it was going to be the end of this story. Uh, so it hit me hard emotionally, you know, it was really, uh, you know, so it's like when you're writing a book, you know, you outline it um, and then you write the first draft and the second draft, and then you get notes from your editor and you go back and forth a few more times and then you do the copy edits and then you proofread the thing. And, you know, uh, this did not happen with the outline, but with the first draft and every, every iteration since then, uh, I have gotten to that last chapter and I'm just, I got tears streaming down my face, <laughs> like kind of ugly crying, uh, you know, and it's not because it's sad, uh, but it's just very, very emotional kind of becoming so attached to these characters and then, uh, and then stepping away from them and letting them go and, you know, and saying, saying goodbye. Uh, 
uh, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a much, much more powerful experience than, than with my previous books. I too cried, John, you know that. <laughs> We're just about out of time. Um, but before we part, I wondered if you could just uh, shed a little light on what it's been like to have your book come out uh, at this point in history. It's been uh, it's been different than I would have expected. Yeah, this is my tenth book, and I was kind of excited about that. But uh, you know, we're in the middle of this terrible pandemic, and we're all having to make adjustments. We're all having to do things differently. Um, you know, as a writer, uh, I sit at home and write. So a lot of the changes that other people have had to to go through, a lot of the adjustments that they've had to make, I have not had to. And in a lot of ways. I've been spared a lot of the uh, the worst of it, and you know, especially the the direct impact. And I know you know a lot of people are going through terrible tragedies in their in their lives, in their family lives. Um, it has been it has been weird. You know, we did the uh, we did a virtual launch, uh, which was actually a great event. And and in ways, you know, one of the nice things about it was that since it was online, since it was virtual, people who were not uh, who were not in the area were able to attend, including you, which was, and it was great to have you. It really meant a lot that you were able to be there. Um, but, uh, but it has, it's been, you know, it feels like there's something missing. I haven't been able to, you know, the bookstores are all closed and, you know, um, the libraries are closed. The, uh, you know, we haven't, haven't done the in-person in events that you normally would do when a book comes out. So in ways it has been, you know, I mean, obviously this is just a real time for everybody. Um, but this aspect of it, uh, has been, uh, uh, has been surreal as well. Um, you know, luckily holiday house has been really nimble and, you know, we're putting together this podcast. Um, they've done a lot of great promotional stuff. We've got some, you know, great social media stuff and, uh, blog stuff and, uh, storygram tours on, on Instagram and that sort of thing. Um, they've also, uh, the, you know, they, they, uh, spliced is on special for ebook, uh, you know, I know if you're, if you're watching this at some point in the future, that special might be uh, over, but, uh, until, uh, June 28th, 2020, uh, it's a dollar 99 on, on, for on all ebook platforms, which is great. Um, and, uh, you know, as everybody, we're kind of rolling and trying to figure out how to, how to get things done in this new temporary normal. Hopefully we'll all come out of it. Okay. On the other end. That is my hope as well. Um, and uh, and I thank you so much for your time and uh, and again for for sharing Jimmy's world with all of us. Look yeah, forward to see thank- what's coming next for you, John. <laughs> and I want to thank you for all your your great you know your support and your wonderful uh, editing input. It, you know these books would not be what they are without you, and uh, and it means the world to me to to have you as an editor and a friend. Uh, it really does. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope we, you know, look forward to working again on, on something sooner than later. Me too. Be well. Yeah, you too. <laughs>